My name is Araceli, and I'm an MRC1 third year. And my name is Ether, and I'm also an MRC1 rising third year. Great to meet you both. Yeah. And you're supposed to introduce yourself, Justin. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Sorry, uh, and I'm Justin Garrett Moore. I am an architect, urban designer, really transdisciplinary designer uh, that works in New York. I work in New York City government as the head of the Public Design Commission in New York City, uh, but I'm also going to be joining as faculty at, at Yale School of Architecture for this fall. That's perfect, thank you. Can you discuss a bit about your background and the type of work that you do? whether that's as a designer, an urbanist, or like part of the New York City Public Design Commission? Sure, so um, I'm from Indianapolis originally, from kind of a black, what they would call the inner city neighborhood. And when I was in high school, I was very lucky that I had the opportunity to start working at an architecture firm when I was 15 years old. So I'm 40 years old now, so I've had by now kind of a 25 year career uh, and engagement and connection to architecture and, and built environment. You know, a lot of people talk about kind of the pipelines and in, into the field and that it's a predominantly white discipline to this day. And that's very much a truth. Um, but I'm kind of an example of when people think a little bit outside of those boxes. And the way that I was able to get that job is that there was a black contractor, minority owned company, uh, named Jimmy Beard, and when he was bidding for this project at my high school to build a new gymnasium, he said, we're going to hire students from this school to work on this project. And so it was a really great way to kind of have a view behind the curtain yeah. uh, into this whole field because I was working in this firm in the summer and I got to see everything from, you know, the designers working on the pitch presentations to the CA people figuring out how to actually get this stuff built. So all the different kinds of, of work that there was in this field, and I really kind of fell in love with it. You know, my entry was into architecture, but then over many different years and many different ways in, in school and practice confronted all the problems that exist in architecture, right? That it's, it's not necessarily as accessible and open to everybody really having power and really having agency. Right. And so even though I had that early exposure, even though I, you know, I did everything I was supposed to do. Right. I went to yeah. a good undergrad and I went to like an, an Ivy League grad and still the barriers are there. Right. Still the opportunities that I see other people having were not there. So kind of what happened along the way and as I'm kind of learning is that what practice is for me and what I care about in practice look very different from what the field and discipline and the profession of architecture is providing. Uh, so that's how I kind of ended up in the urban design, urbanism world, because the social objectives, thinking about environment, thinking about people, thinking about spaces and places, I saw happening in a way that that was more complete for me, yeah. uh, frankly, than, than, than architecture and its institutions and its offices and and just everything about it was was providing yeah and i think to that point so what what is your particular experience with policy making as part of the public design commission in new york city yeah so uh you know i've been working in government for 15 years now in in, in different roles uh so at the design commission it's a very unique part of city government most cities don't have 
something exactly like it, but we have jurisdiction over the design of mm. public projects. So all the things that are being built in New York City, uh, around $10 billion a year capital projects budget of things being built and, and rebuilt in New York by all different sorts of agencies and entities. Some of that is being built by the government directly, uh, designing built by government directly. Some of it is private sector, but all of it has to come to us and we're the, what I call the quality control department. We're there to make sure that the people are getting the best possible result for their communities and, and for our city. And so we see all the different projects and we're there to kind of balance and kind of make sure the, the objectives are, are met, whether that's function or fitting in within a neighborhood context or meeting any number of uh, different criteria. It could be about accessibility. It could be about environmental performance and really looking at design in a comprehensive way to make sure that we're getting a good result. So we, you know, some projects are low budget and pretty scrappy. Some projects are, are major multi- million or even billion dollar projects, but it's our job to make sure that the design is serving the public. And it's a great role and something that I, I love having that responsibility. mentioned the lack of accessibility in architecture more specifically. So now in your current role in the Public Design Commission, do you see that same lack of accessibility or is it more of a multicultural environment where you're able to really express yourself and, and pursue? So to be purely frank, it's still there. It's pervasive. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know, I'm a, a leader in government. I'm the head of a New York City agency. So I'm, you know, I'm kind of as high as you can possibly go with as a designer in, in New York City government. And I still see the, the resistance, right? My knowledge and expertise and value is is still discounted. Happens all the time. I go into a room, and in theory, I'm I'm like the the person that needs to be listened to, and people still discount yeah. what I say and what I know. Mm -hmm. Right, all, all, all the time, frankly. Um, and it's something that you have to kind of assert your power, you have to build your reputation, and there, there are a lot of factors that go into it, but I still see challenges. Yeah. At the same time, I can say with almost absolute certainty that if I were in other sectors and other modes of, of operation, I wouldn't have the kind of role and the kind of power and the kind of access that I do have if I were in a private sector firm or even within the kind of the NGO non-for-profit world where your personal connections and ability to raise money and, and do independent projects. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't have a trust fund and I don't know somebody that's going <laughs> to, you know, yeah. make, make things work even in that space. Uh, so, you know, I, I do find working in government and public sector friendlier to a broader diversity of people. I actually will share uh, with you all a link and maybe you can post it. We did a feature this year called uh, Public Designers. Uh, so all the designers that work in New York City government. Oh, that's cool. 
they don't work in a firm and all this, like they work yeah. for the government and they're doing multi-million dollar projects. They're, they're sort of responsible for these big things that have big impact, but you'll never have them lecturing at, at Yale. Uh, you won't see them published in Architect Magazine or, you know, yeah. frankly, anywhere because they're public servants. They're designers, they're architects, and they're working in public service. The yeah. authorship isn't about them. It's about serving the public. It's an entirely different model. Mm-hmm. And there are hundreds of people just in New York City government that are doing that work as design. Yeah, that's so true. Uh, we would absolutely love that link, actually. Um, yeah, I'll share it. We are... This is a little side story. We are in the process of collecting guest speakers to propose to the dean. So, oh, if okay. You had any suggestions? That would be amazing, actually. The thing that's great about it, and when I share it with you, you'll see how different people are. How much yeah. people have to contribute based on their backgrounds and experiences is amazing, right? So, kind of across age ranges. Right, like there's there's no fetish of the the emerging forty under forty designer, right? When you're in yeah. when you're in civil service, right? Or like the ego kind of architect type figure, right? There are all these different kinds of people that are doing important and transformative practice, and they just look very different. And finding ways to elevate and value those people is really important. I think during this time that we're all sort of collectively going. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's very important to diversify the different types of voices that are being heard both in academia and in professional life. But just going back to yourself, so you have this social enterprise called Urban Patch, which deals with sustainable development in the, in the U.S. and Rwanda. Can you talk more about how that started up and how you acquired this connection to, with Rwanda more specifically? Sure. Um, so Urban Patch has kind of an interesting history. It started kind of as a seed of an idea way back in graduate school. And we were doing work in Baltimore in the urban design studios. Uh, and in Baltimore, people know the context. There's a, a lot of disinvestment and serious issues there, including thinking about environmental justice considerations. And so we were doing a studio that was based on something called urban patch dynamics. Uh, this is something that's borrowed from ecology. It talks about how change happens in an environment in an ecology. The example they always give is like, you know, in a forest, there are different species of trees. And over time, kind of the, the makeup of that forest is, is kind of adapting. And there are these group of scientists working in a group called the Baltimore Ecosystem Study that were studying how those models actually work in urban contexts and that people and built environment are a part of this sort of ecological framework yeah. for change called Urban Patch Dynamics. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the initial seed. Mm-hmm. And so I started doing work professionally and starting to think about how I was going to carve out my own practice, right? So I'm working in government. I have my job. You know, I was even teaching. And so there are all these things that I'm doing, but it wasn't yet practices I understood what was sort of missing or what I thought was valuable. I'm from Indianapolis, as I mentioned earlier, and so the neighborhood I grew up had a lot of the issues that we see in American cities with disinvestment, vacant lots, vacant buildings, extreme inequalities, and I just thought, well, what can I do to make some improvements in in the community where I'm from? So this idea of the urban patch dynamics, right, is, is this incremental scale of development. So 
as opposed to my government role, like the big top down, like we're going to rezone <laughs> and redevelop ideas like we're going to take this little thing yeah. <laughs> and make it better and we're yeah. going to grow and improve it, right? Mm -hmm. the, the way that you see things over time and in different scale and approach. So we started our first project, was, which was this little garden, <laughs> uh, a vacant <laughs> lot, and we crowdfunded using this platform called IOBI, which, side note, IOBI was started by students who met at Yale School of Forestry. Okay. Uh, oh. And they created this crowdfunding platform. So we crowdfunded money using the IOB platform to improve this little garden. And so that was really the start of my practice, Urban Patches as my body of work, was this little garden uh, yeah. in the neighborhood where I grew up. And so we started from there and, and developed the model, the model being that over time you grow and improve place with people looking at different strategies. And so we bought a vacant house, improved that, bought another vacant lot, bought another vacant house. And over time, we've been aggregating that, which is quote unquote patch yeah. in the neighborhood. Okay. So that's kind of the core of how Urban Patch started. And we do lots of different projects. And fast forward to how we got connected to doing work in Rwanda. I have a good friend uh, from, from graduate school, Fatu Die. She would be a great uh, lecturer. Uh, <laughs> I'll <laughs> keep note of that. <laughs> um, uh, but she's a, you know, a black woman architect who had started doing work in, in Rwanda. And so for years she was like, oh, you have to come see, come visit. So I went to visit her kind of socially as a friend. But once I got there, I understood that there was this whole other kind of world and context for how you could work in practice. And there it's a uh, context that, you know, a lot of people know the history with the genocide yeah. uh, around 25 years ago, major need for development, but also thinking about kind of the, the social and environmental changes and future of that city uh, in Kigali, the capital. And architecture and design was, in theory, something that could be in service to making that a, a better outcome for that city. And so sort of thought, well, let's try Urban Patch <laughs> Kigali. So again, this similar model, which is kind of this incremental scale, the smaller scale of development. And it's been really a great opportunity slash collaboration there because there the idea is like, oh, we need the big housing estate development, right? We have a big housing problem. We've got a huge need for housing. And so we need 100 units, 1,000 units, and they're, they're building these housing estates, but they actually don't work that well. Okay. Um, and so our, our model, the kind of the incremental scale model, is this exercise of how do you use design, architecture, urban design, planning to develop and grow in a different way. So our housing model there is affordable housing that's mixed with market rate housing that combines populations that normally are not combined in that development context, right? There, you normally have a very wealthy neighborhood, and then you have a kind of a lower-income neighborhood, and yep. there, there isn't a lot of mixing. So through architecture, through design, and through kind of design process, we're developing alternative models that look at the future of that city. And it's all grown out of, of Urban Patch. It's taken from equity that we pulled out of our developments in Indianapolis to fund the project and to develop and build. So I'm the planner, designer, developer, builder, <laughs> you know, we control the entire dynamics and that kind of gives us freedom to build models in different ways. So it's, it's really exciting to see yeah. 
Urban Patch as a model working in these very different contexts, but the model and the, the idea itself has, has some integrity and consistency to the original idea. Did you have a question, Eric? <laughs> I asked the other one. Yeah, so I mean, I love the idea of Urban Patch. Yeah. I think yeah, the mixing sure. of you know two different groups or two groups who previously did not have any interaction with each other is incredibly important in both architecture and urban design. Does this feed into the joint urban studies and design course that you are currently or you are going to be teaching at Yale or other in collaboration with Morgan University? Are you trying to you know bring some of these ideas back into the course and then try and spread that to the students perhaps? Yes, absolutely. So the, you know, the kind of, I call my teaching hat. I'm, I'm mostly a practitioner, right? I'm, I'm working in, in government and in my own practice, but I think it's so important to bring into the schools, you know, other ideas and other models and other references. Part of this is because I know for my, you know, I went to design school a total of seven years and there was just a lot that I wasn't exposed to or taught intentionally or unintentionally about practice and design and, and, and references. So last year I started teaching a seminar down at Columbia called Difference and Design. Hmm. So like my, from my very, very young age, like my obsession or the kind of the concept that I'm constantly pursuing as an intellectual project is the role of difference in okay. our work, right? So yeah. difference can have a productive Kind of result and, and you know there's the acknowledgement of difference between people right there are three different of us people on this call and we have different experiences yeah. and knowledge and that that can be an incredible positive it's a resource but unfortunately difference has typically been used in negative ways <laughs> right in, yeah. in society and, and especially when it comes to architecture and urbanism where exclusion and differentiation have been used for exploitation and a number of kind of problematic movies. So difference in the design kind of as a academic inquiry is about putting those two realities together in dialogue with one another to explore as we're learning. It was a really great course and, and as the opportunity to teach at Yale came up, I was thinking about this, okay, this is the seed of the idea, but then how does it enter Yale as an institution, right? Which is, you all know better than I do, but <laughs> even, from, even from the outside, that's a difficult conversation yeah. to intentionally put things in opposition, to like challenge the canon or the structures of value that are literally in stone and concrete yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, in these institutions. And so the, the first conversation or challenge that I put to the university was that the ivory tower kind of the elite institution was not something that I was interested in coming in to make legitimate in kind of the container of Yale, right? So the people that are already elite or already chosen to, to be this community yeah. to have this conversation to the exclusion of other people. I wanted to break that container. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, uh, spoke with Sunil and I think because of the social moment that we're in, there's a level of understanding that is new to me, I think is new to a lot of people. 
that wasn't just a, oh, that's a nice idea. It was a, we need to figure out how to make this happen. Yeah. You know, so my skepticism about the whole uh, situation really changed in my conversations with him because he said, we're going to figure out how we, we break down this wall. Yeah. And so the end result was this joint, what I'm calling a trans-institutional learning environment where the seminar will be obviously accessible to Yale students. I think it's a combination of Yale School of Architecture grad and Yale undergrad urban studies, but it will be open to students from Morgan State University, uh, the historically black college in Baltimore, right? Kind of that's full so circle cool. to Baltimore. Yeah, that's so um, And the idea is that in the room or in the Zoom, in the Zoom, <laughs> yeah. um, there's going to be a learning environment with a very different population of people than you normally would see at Yale University. And that's the framework for how I'm wanting to push the institution, but also to have this conversation of these two things in tension, right? How do we talk about and understand difference in a way that deconstructs some of the things that have been problematic in architecture and urbanism that we're, we learn about and introducing kind of new ideas and things that have not traditionally been able to be a part of that conversation and to do it frankly, with the platform and, and resources that places like Yale can provide. Yeah, it's an exciting class. I actually know a lot of students that are really interested in this class. Eva and I are both actually really interested in this class, but something tells us it might be like a difficult class to get into. <laughs> Very popular. <laughs> that was a part of the, the conversation. It was actually an uncomfortable conversation because, <laughs> like, oh, like, oh, a lot of people are going to be interested in this class. And I was like, that's great, but the class has to have space for... Yeah. the Morgan State students, right? And so it's a difficult conversation, but I hope that this is is a breaking of the box and that yeah. this will be the test. And I mean, unless something like really crazy happens, the university is not going to have an excuse to say that we can't do more. That's oh, that's my that's nice. my agenda in a way is to, to say we really need to find new ways to bring more people into to share learning. And I think that should be the job of the university. Yeah. Uh, and at the kind of most fundamental level. And, and I think we're going to be successful in doing it. We do too. <laughs> we're super excited. Yeah, I think, I think that, that all sounds amazing. It's incredibly relevant as to what's happening in the world currently. And it's quite admirable. Um, yeah. I guess my next question is towards the idea of difference, especially in the architectural pedagogy. And the whole idea of rewriting the architectural canon, which really seems like you're... <laughs> you know, moving to or alluding towards. Can you tell us a bit about unlearning whiteness, the statement written from the black faculty at GISA, and perhaps what were the early conversations surrounding that? Was it something always in the works? And have you received a response yet from the institution? Yeah, so I absolutely, this is sort of a grounding issue, and you all are in school, so you, you know this too, like what is in the canon, what is, is kind of embedded in the way that we learn, and it is the white colonial project, right? I mean, it's, and everyone is forced to embrace and support and build this system that has not been to the advantage of everyone. We all end up, whether we want to or not, you're forced to lay the bricks of this system that, you know, you know doesn't advantage you. Mm Um, and it's pervasive. It's not just in these elite institutions. Uh, we've had conversations in recent weeks about what happens at, at black institutions, and they have the same problem. They are also taught 
Wow. Okay. This is what matters. So it is pervasive. Yeah. I mean, they whoever it is that set this whole thing in motion is very good at taking. And so the unlearning whiteness conversation came out of, of discussions with the faculty at GSAP and really trying to kind of step back a little bit and understand sort of the origins of these issues and the more systemic things. And a lot of the initial responses were like, oh, well, we need more black faculty. We need more black lectures. We need more black students. And we need to diversify and have uh, black indigenous and people of color yeah. kind of agency and resourcing and all that, which should happen, and it's good. But if you kind of know your history, this isn't the first time this has happened. Yeah. Uh, we've had these conversations before, and we've had those responses before. And that occurred, and then it was undone pretty yeah. quickly, right? And pretty consistently across different institutions. And we're sort of doing this project of understanding why that is. And it's, it's like, you know, you have the weed or whatever and you pull the top of the weed and you don't get the root and grows back. Yeah. And we want to talk about the root and the root is white supremacy and whiteness. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a difficult conversation to have because obviously there's the distancing and, you know, this is the way it is or we're not responsible for this, but to say, okay, maybe you didn't create it, but you, you actually are responsible for this as an institution, yeah, as of course. Uh, people in power, people with agency for perpetuating the system. And that unlearning whiteness was to say that we need to spend our time and bandwidth not doing all these other things that should happen anyway. Just do them. You, you know, you've done them before, do it, <laughs> right? Um, but we need to spend our bandwidth and our energy and focus on talking about whiteness because that is the root problem. Whiteness, white supremacy, and that happens in a studio crit when ideas are valued and put in a context that is based in white supremacy. It happens when someone is writing a paper about a topic that's interesting to them and they say, oh, well, you don't have enough primary sources uh, and you should really frame it relative to this X, Y, and Z that I've been taught is a valuable reference. That's based on white supremacy and whiteness. It's when, you know, they're putting together studio briefs or studio trips and things like that, and who's allowed to teach and who's allowed to lecture and who's, who's selecting the, the sites and the topics. It's all based on this. So we have to talk about whiteness. Yeah. And once we talk about that and acknowledge it, then we can start this process of unlearning. Yeah. Right? Which is to to say, okay, how do we step back and not necessarily deconstruct because it's it's not necessarily that as a project. It may be that you put your energy into just growing and building alternatives. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of different ways that it could happen, but we have to first acknowledge it, spend some energy and some bandwidth on whiteness and not diversity and inclusion, not yeah. um, like here do some black stuff, here do some indigenous <laughs> stuff, here yeah. do, you know, yeah. like garnish and not fundamentally changing, you know, the system. Yeah. And I guess just circling back to the lack of accessibility in practice itself, do you think that lack of accessibility is a symptom of the whiteness in academia or is it 
an entity within itself that needs to be addressed? Or do you reckon that addressing whiteness in academia is part of the pipeline, essentially? So yeah, I, I think, and I actually just had a conversation with Ardina GSAP, Columbia, about this earlier. So I think they're absolutely connected. It's both, basically, right? So within academia, you have these structures and, and it sort of positions people for, for different roles and different levels of agency. But then when you go into practice, the same thing happens. So, you know, I was alluding to earlier, like I'm able to be successful in the role that I have in government, I probably wouldn't be so successful in a private practice because my networks and resources and all of that don't function well in, in those practices. And that's based on whiteness and capital as well. You know, we can criticize and talk about the architecture schools and academia all we want, but they don't control all of that. They're connected to it, absolutely, but there are other things that are also happening that they don't control. So the conversation shifts to, well, then what is the role of the university yeah. in the world, right? Generating knowledge, testing and demonstrating things, convening to have an impact on practice. Uh, and I, I think schools, you know, not all schools have the same level of agency there, but schools like Yale, schools like Columbia do have agency there. They yeah. do have influence yeah. and power. And so I, I think we do have to push the institutions to be a part of the transformation, right? And to do that, the intellectual work, to take on the risk, this is a big one, right? Universities have become like corporate yeah. models of, <laughs> yeah. you know, product and, and whatever, and I think have abdicated some of their core responsibilities in society. Yeah. And so, and a part of that is taking the risk, like the unlearning whiteness proposition in a way is to take the risk of doing that is not something that any corporation is going to do. It's not happening. A university is in a totally different position than a corporation or, yeah. or even a government. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and so they need to think about that role and that power. And the role of students absolutely is essential uh, in pushing that because you're in, a, in kind of a position to challenge the institution and to create new spaces and new opportunities and new dialogue yeah. that can change the institution. And then push the institution to help change practice and then know there is kind of a cycle or, or back and forth that happens yeah. between them. Ethan and I were actually part of a meeting that we had with the dean. We sent a letter that we call it the Black Lives Matter movement letter to the dean kind of expressing our disappointment with the school but also the changes we hoped they would take and then with that the curriculum committee reached out to us and they said we kind of want to know more about the changes you want to make to curriculum which involves Sunil right and so it was Sunil that actually introduced Yo no must and EID to the unlearning whiteness. Um, oh, okay, great. Yeah, so it was really it was really refreshing to read. I think because as a student, like you, you have all these thoughts in your head, and like at, at the same time that you kind of just like don't connect them. Right. And then reading it was just like, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking, but I wasn't finding the words for it. Yeah. But, it was a great process putting the letter together because what we tried to do was step back and knowing that there was this frustration from, yeah. from a lot of people, yeah. like knowing yeah. if this is bad, it's not working, and not being able to help people understand the different components of it. So I'm, I'm happy to hear that it's been useful in yeah. contacts outside of these stuff. That's cool to hear. We did have another question. 
that had to do with the AIA architect panel that you took part in 2018. I guess if you can just describe the erasure and what happened with that. Yeah, sure. So this is like a, you can't make this stuff up is what I tell people. So back in 2018, so again, I'm the head of the design commission in New York City. We've been doing a lot of work related to affordable housing design. So serious research, like really collaborative process involving AIA and architects across the country, trying to help get better outcomes in affordable housing. So 2018 was AIA conference happened to be in New York. And so we had conversations with people about programming and participating in that. And our affordable housing efforts were a part of it. So like, like the Public Design Commission's efforts on addressing affordable housing architecture being highlighted at the conference. So that was the conversation. Yeah. I'm literally the, the leader of that initiative. And so we've worked with folks at Architect Magazine, and it turns out Architect Magazine, Hanley Wood, the kind of big media company that is really operating Architect Magazine, put together this panel on affordable housing design. So the panel is myself, is our project. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then we asked others who had been involved in the project who were featured in the research, so architects and developers and then kind of a housing researcher, to join me on the panel to talk about this issue at the AIA convention. We have a panel, it's great, and you know, we all sign our thing and like, oh, it's going to be posted to the website with the video and I'm at the conference and I'm sitting in the middle of the panel because I was one of the main speakers yeah. and fast forward and architect publishes the panel and they literally erased me right so there are like however many of us speaking and they edited the video which it would have been fine if they just edited the video make it shorter right like oh you know your stuff is online people could see it so we edited out your portion they didn't just do that they didn't just clip out my section where I was speaking they clipped out the section where I was speaking. They took the time to edit the videos so that, again, I'm in the middle of the panel, so they had to edit the videos so that I didn't appear in the video anywhere, yeah. right? So that took work. Yeah. And then even, like, the slides and, like, the session description, like, I was listed there because I was at the panel, I spoke. Yeah. They took the time to create new slides. This is crazy. Erasing my name. And then they published the whole thing as if I were never there. And so, like, found out about one of the other panelists, Karen Covey, who's a great housing researcher. So she was, like, appalled. Yeah, of course. And they had, like, dropped me from the whole email chains about it. So she, she let oh. me know, you know, you're being left out of this. You need to know this. And so I was like, um, yeah, we need to do something about this. She tried, but it was sort of left, oh, well, you know, it's already done. It's kind of too bad. So this, is, this happened two years ago. Yeah. And this, by the way, was 2018. So while the AIA is doing their, <laughs> yeah. their big road show, like, oh, yeah, Whitney Young did a speech 50 years ago and we haven't actually changed. But, yeah. Yeah. you know, black yeah. people stuff, Whitney Young, 50 yeah. years ago, <laughs> you know, they do it like over and over again. So tired. So I'm like, okay, whatever. And I sort of like, I file it away. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, right? I, like, I, I just know, I'm like, I know this is, this is yeah. going to be something at some point. And so uh, fast forward to everything now, and there are all these statements coming out about how we value people and they get, you know, AIA, like, yeah, Whitney Young again. It's like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And Architect Magazine, so there are all these statements coming out. And I'm just like, this is just not true. You are lying. Yeah. And so I 
make it known, right, that this happened as an illustration, as a very tangible illustration for what this field does to people. Yeah. It wasn't like a metaphorical <laughs> kind of thing. Like, you literally erase, like, you did work to erase me. Yeah. That's, that's quite disgusting, actually. I, I, I do it think is. it's important to, to call them out, definitely. Yeah, it's right. And so I do that. And then like, of course, everyone's in crisis mode right now. Like, oh, da, da, da. <laughs> and they tried to make it sound like it was an accident or oversight and error. I was like, no, this one, it's not an, oh, anyone that, I don't know if you've ever edited videos. It takes time and work to do that. That wasn't it like was. an accidental oversight thing, right? Someone intentionally did this. So that was number one. And number two, they made it sound like, oh, someone at one point said, we're sorry this happened to you. And I made the points like this didn't happen to me. Like this happens to black and brown people all the time, everywhere, like for decades and generations and mm -hmm. years, right? And that, and that was the point that I wanted to make. It wasn't, I want you to say sorry to me. That could have been a private email. The whole point was that you do this systematically to a lot of people. Yeah. Exactly. You know, they were still kind of leaning in hard on like, oh, this happened to you. We're sorry, there's no recite. And then Stephen Gray, who's an architect and urban designer, he teaches up at Harvard. He's like, well, funny you should say that because last month, you know, May 2020, I was erased. Oh. And uh, he was part of a winning design team for an AIA award. And so when you get the AIA awards, they publish it in Architect Magazine. And so he was a member of one of these teams that won in the project. And they had literally <laughs> erased him out. And they said, oh, well, you were uh, a nominator on the project. And so you're not allowed to be featured. And he's like, and the award was for a collaborative design award. And so he was one of the collaborators on a collaborative design award. And they erased him. So it's like, no, you didn't do this to me. You do this to people all the time. Yeah. Um, so in conversations uh, with them about what to do, um, <laughs> And I, I, working with Stephen and with a lot of people you probably know about the Design Justice Network of people all over the country, we're sort of framing what is it that we would want our media, our design media to do differently, and we're going to be putting that forward to them as we're developing it. I was sort of strategically wanting it to not be about me. I want it to be about that this happens to people all the time. As a young black designer myself, I've become incredibly hyper aware of this erasure in architecture. I mean, it's as simple as going to any architectural firm, clicking on people and seeing who's actually in the firm. Yeah. You see nobody that looks like you. And this whole idea of erasure is just incredibly demoralizing, to say the least. So I guess a, a question on this is, how do we give power and validity to the black voices to ensure that things like this don't happen in the future? I have a few different answers to that. So one is um, this sort of idea of incremental, but still coordinated and systemic action is really important. In my case, talking to Yale and saying, yes, I'll teach a course here, but I'm only doing it if you allow HBCU students to take it for free. Yeah, And, you know, making sure that the answer to that is yes. 
right? That's an individual action. But imagine if we had 500 people around the country doing that at, yeah. you know, 200 different institutions. Mm -hmm. yeah. There is sort of a scale of operation and power that exists in these, for lack of a better word, transactional interactions that happen with women-led groups. There used to be kind of a campaign that clearly didn't go anywhere, but it used mm -hmm. to be like getting men to agree to not speak on a panel or at a conference if there weren't women. So someone says, hey, Ife, you, you know, you're a cool guy. Like, we want you to come speak to so-so at this conference. And for you to ask, that's great. I'm happy to do it. Are there any women? Yep. Oh, okay. that's interesting. Yeah. And so it's this, like, individual transaction that can put pressure on the systems to, to get some changes. Um, so that's one response is, like, looking at the many different kinds of agency and power that people do have individually. And it involves coordinating and communicating with one another and, yeah. and kind of putting together platforms for that. But there is power and agency there. So then the other and the harder one, right, is the power and agency that exists within these institutions. And that's a challenge. <laughs> you know, institutions are literally designed to perpetuate themselves and to perpetuate their systems and structures. And so there the conversation is, I think, a little different. And, you know, there's sort of part politics, part campaign part shame, um, yeah. part um, <laughs> demanding from people that, that they be uncomfortable, right? And, and uh, I was alluding to it earlier, but also demanding that people be willing to take risks. And that looks like a lot of different things. That could be the risk of what may to some be perceived as a loss. You know, we don't listen to what white people think or sometime as being primary like there are a lot there are a lot of people in the world like white people are not the majority in the world but to this day and it's accepted that the majority of who we listen to in our institutions are still white yeah it's just accepted like everybody just rolls with it yeah and you know there may need to be some pushing there on that and and to say you know not to the exclusion of white people or anything but no, um I would say white slash whiteness, like is there? Yeah, it gets complicated the more you dig into this stuff. But there, are, <laughs> there are white people that aren't white uh, functionally, let's say. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I think it's important to push there and to say to these power structures, you have to be willing to risk and to have loss in order for people that haven't had access and opportunity to have the time and the space to grow, to figure things out, the time to fail. I don't know if I, I mentioned it earlier, but I'm, I'm a part of this group called Black Space, which is a kind of a collective of urbanists and designers, planners, artists, people of different disciplines. And we have a, what we call the Black Space Manifesto. Oh. And it's all these different kind of principles about what it is to sort of get better outcomes in black and black and brown communities. Um, yeah. But one of them is, is about giving people the opportunity to take risks and to fail and to grow. And it takes time and energy to do that. But if you're spending all of your resources promoting and propping up and investing in people that don't really need it, frankly, you're not going to have the resources and bandwidth to resource the people that probably do need it. And so I think that's a difficult and hard conversation that needs to be put. Yeah. It's good that you mentioned Black Spaces. that tied to our final question to you, are there any groups or collectives that you would like to like give a shout out to or draw our attention to that you currently know of today? Sure. So yeah. So definitely Blackspace, blackspace.org, 
for sure. And that's sort of a growing uh, entity. It, it, it's a group that started at Harvard Black and Design Conference back in 2015. Oh, nice. And so it's a kind of group of people that met organically there and it's over time developed into more of its own entity. And we have chapters and, and or affiliates, we call it, in different cities now, which is great. There's Design Futures, which is the sort of consortium of designers and architects that have been challenging and pushing design education, design pedagogy for a number of years, and they kind of move around and connect to different networks in different universities, so they're really great. The Design is Protest Collective, so that's Brian Lee's kind of original group under Co-Locate that had been advancing design justice. And that's really grown into this incredible effort. Over a thousand people are somehow by now connected to it. Yeah. But they're sort of a core group. And part of that is a group that I'm a part of, a subgroup that I'm a part of that is looking at transformations needed in learning and education and, and built environment and design field. Yeah. Our sort of working title for it is Dark Matter uh, University. <laughs> um, I, we don't know if that's okay. where the name is going to be, but it's essentially a number of us that are teaching in different institutions to sort of create and make spaces and push conversations for an anti-racist and a, a justice-focused mode of, of educating around design practice. So, I mean, that's kind of a, a component of it, but then ultimately looking for spaces outside of institutions because there may be other spaces and other communities that, that need to operate there aren't in the institutional frame. Yeah. Um, so those are three big ones, mm -hmm. Design the Protest, Black Space, and um, uh, the, um, oh my God, it left my name. Wow, I'm getting old. No, it's, <laughs> it's, it's Teresa Wong and Christine Gaspar and all that yeah, uh, yeah. that work with the university. I, I, it's amazing for me to see, it's the first time in my lifetime seeing this, but there are a lot of emerging organizations and institutions that are kind of developing as we speak. It sort of feels like a really special time, yeah, uh, which is the silver lining of the horrible year that this has been, is that the sort of the collective stress, I think, has motivated people to organize and to sort of reframe and, and to question some things. And so that's really exciting. And it's just sort of like keep your eyes and ears open for <laughs> like, yeah, uh, all yeah. these different spaces that are emerging and, and figuring out how to collect and collate work, but also sharing resources and kind of amplifying each other, supporting each other yeah. uh, to be very possible. Yeah. Oh, another, mm -hmm. I mean, not really along the same lines, but just things and places to follow. So Next City uh, is, a, is a great organization. This is more urbanists and designers, but Next City is a great network of people that are pushing for the world and our cities to be more of what we want it to be. It's this program, it's also this cult of youth thing, like 40 under 40 type thing, but uh, it's this program where they're kind of identifying people doing interesting work that's equity and justice and socially focused for a number of years. And so that's a great resource. We're actually partnering with them to do a program called Spaces and Places coming up in August, uh, but they're a great platform and they're a media organization, right? So they're doing the work oh. of journalism and communications around these issues to, to elevate people of color voices or elevate issues that have affected uh, black and brown communities uh, as they sort of are situated within the cities.
Yeah, I, I have one last question. Um, I guess for me personally, I just want to know how, or I want to know your thoughts about navigating the professional space as a black male in both architecture and urban design. You know, there's, there's various stereotypes you have to overcome. There's the code switching, there's the potential tokenization and feeling whether or not you actually belong in that particular space. Do you have any advice as to how best to approach that or how to perceive what's happening currently? Yeah, uh, it's, I'll just be very honest. It's, it's, it's horrible. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah. it's really challenging. There are sort of two persistent issues that, that I have. One is the lack of, maybe lack of respect is maybe too strong. But there's, there's always a situation where you're just not on the same plane, um, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Uh, there, there's sort of a running joke going on now, not just in architecture, but a lot of different fields, where it's like, I just want to be a mediocre white man. <laughs> I, I want to be able to operate in the world in that way and to have the value and the, the kind of the leeway to just exist in the world in that way. And it's, it's very hard because you you know, we don't get to exist in that world, right? You're, you're not allowed to make mistakes. You're not allowed to be yourself always without these sort of layers of judgment, dismissal, erasure. I mean, frankly, it's worse for, for women of color. It's really challenging. And so what, what happens is, and a lot of people know this, this sort of saying, like you just have to be 10 times as good, sort of how you end up having to operate. It's hard. It's draining. It's, it's yeah. like you just you can't be good all the time. Yeah. Uh, and I personally, I think I have a little bit of a personality that is sort of an, an accommodating, more B-type personality. And so I'm able to navigate spaces in ways that I think others, frankly, yeah. aren't able to. But it's still hard. Even even with my kind of, uh, <laughs> kind of B personality, it's, it's still very hard. Now, a kind of a more personal, uh, recent story with uh, everything that's been going on, with the protests, and, and looking at conversations about ethics in the field. And so, at the Design Commission, part of our jurisdiction was, for example, the, the projects working on the borough-based jails. You know, the, the reality is, in the past two, three years, I've been working on, on these projects, I was typically the only black person in the room. And these are, you know, these are big projects, so it's like they're 10, 15, 20, 40, 50 people in these rooms. And I would be the only black person. And I was, you know, in theory, a, a black person with power. Yeah. But even as a black person, in theory, with power, I was still dismissed, erased, mm-hmm. uh, and, and put on a different plane. Yeah. You know, that was one of those things where you're in it to win it, right? And so you're like, I'm here, I'm going to do my best to, to get something done. And that kind of scale of like me versus 30 people, guess what? I didn't win. And it, you know, it was sort of this persistent thing that it grates on you and it, it affects you personally. And yeah. so with everything going on, I did tell my, my deputy mayors that I can't participate in this anymore because I know what's going on and it's white supremacy. And I said that, ex- I said that to her explicitly, like this is white supremacy. And I can't be here as a kind of a tokenized yeah, yeah. person, you know, you'll, you'll put me out there and say, oh, look, here are black leaders. But if I don't actually have any agency and power to do anything about it, then that's tokenization. 
Yeah. And so that's like kind of the other thing that happens to a lot of people is you're put in this position where I, I guess you're just supposed to be happy you're there. I don't know what the, their logic <laughs> is, but yeah. uh, it's a very unhappy place to be, I can tell you firsthand. Yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, I've, I've kind of made that statement to remove myself from the project. And now the people that are left working on that project have to own the fact that they're advancing as an entirely yeah. uh, white group of people. <laughs> um, and they have to own that that's what they're doing without my tacit participation and, and therefore approval. Um, but it's, it's hard. And I, I think it is a, a person by person basis because I just know different personalities of people and, and obviously backgrounds and things and people that are kind of more energetic and out there and all <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. like it, it can be incredibly hard and they get pushed out and they get pigeonholed a lot. Like they get assigned to roles that, that whoever is in power is comfortable with them taking certain roles. It's really, really pervasive and bad in, in every environment, including quote-unquote progressive environment. Sometimes it's worse in the progressive environment. It's a little discouraging to hear. <laughs> I just... <laughs> it's, 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 it's true. <laughs> it's, it's discouraging, but that's why... So when, when we're talking about the unlearning whiteness, that's why the unlearning whiteness is to push that. Like, if there should never... In, in New York City, there should never be a, a meeting where there's only one black person. But, but, you know, it's just like, that should not be a thing. And it is, it is whiteness that produces that. All the people that say, oh, it's a pipeline and all that stuff, that is BS. <laughs> there are plenty of little brown kids who want to be architects. That is not the yeah. problem. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, and engineers and builders. and that, that's not the, that is complete BS. We should still promote those programs. And all. Not, it's not a criticism that you shouldn't have pipeline programs, but that's not the problem. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, it's like it's literally not the problem. Because you can have a great pipeline of all these people and you put them through school and all that. And then they get and they show up in a job and it's like, oh, you're too, you're too much, right? You're too black, you're too whatever it is. And then like, you know what, we'll let you work on like the community engagement project Mm where, you know what, maybe you, maybe you should do the technical stuff. Like, you know, really figure out these, you know, wall sections or something. And it's, it's messed up. But that's why this idea of building other spaces, making these networks, pushing people on their individual agency, and then kind of pushing the institutions, the associations, all these other structures to kind of shift and transform as being part of their responsibility, I, I think is important. That makes sense. And it's completely fair. This was really good to hear. <laughs> like the it conversations, was. everything you give out was really good to hear. No, I mean, thank you all for um, putting it together. Something I'm very conscious about is that, you know, you all are giving your labor, right? Like there, there's work that you're doing yeah. that really the university. <laughs> the yep. university should be doing. And Reese, like, frankly, they should be paying you to I do agree. this. <laughs> <laughs> I completely <laughs> agree. <laughs> you know, it's, it's work and I, I understand it's hard because it's like it's advocacy yeah. and there's, yeah. you know, well, some of it is for your own purposes and interests. But there is this line where some of this work is the institution's work. Yeah. And it's just the simple premise of compensating people for their, their time and labor and skills. Exactly. Uh, like that really shouldn't, it really shouldn't even be that hard yeah compensation happens in different ways for sure like the money is always the best way because it's the most transactable form but there are other ways that that compensation happens as well like it happens with opportunity it happens with 
space and time, like things take different forms, but it, it needs to be resourced and not only you by design, there are very few of you and by design, you can kind of have things peter out because they know people burn out and yeah. like there, there's, you know, yeah. there are logics behind these things. Like the world, the world is, is set up the way it's set up for, for reasons. Yeah. Um, and so thank you for putting in this time and, and putting in this work and, and skill to, um, to help all of us, including the white people. Uh, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, the, the white people need help. It's <laughs> 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 like, you know, the things that they just, don't yeah. fully, they don't fully understand. And so, you know, sometimes they need help. When you get into serious conversations, I think the ones that are more aware will, will acknowledge that. Yeah. Sure. Um, they, they really will. And I think that number, what appears to be some kind of tipping point, that the number of people that seem to have that awareness has changed. And I, I do think it's, it's important to acknowledge that. Don't be so cynical. Thank you very much. I think this has been an incredibly productive conversation. Great, thank you. Oh my God, yeah, we're so excited for you to come. Very <laughs> yeah, yeah, happy, happy to be joining. Although it's going to be virtual, I'm happy to be joining uh, uh, the community there. I'll, I, I will give Yale and, and uh, uh, your dean some some points in that a couple years ago, they, they did have me come up and, and do yeah. the CERN lecture. Okay. Um, and so it's not like they they just all of a sudden like they just went googling and found a black person like <laughs> yeah. there there was like a legitimate like connection yeah. and relationship there so yeah. they're they're not totally um, you know just yeah reactionary exactly exactly I do want to give some credit to. Jessica Kim. I am a rising second year in the MRC1 program, and I'm just here to announce an upcoming podcast conversation that I had with two really great individuals, Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson and Brian Lee. Ayana is a marine biologist and conservation strategist. She also helped write the Blue New Deal and founded the Urban Ocean Lab. And Brian Lee is an architect and founder of Colocate, which is a design justice practice that focuses on designing spaces of racial, social, and cultural justice. We all had a great conversation about justice being the center of hopefully a great reckoning in both architecture and the climate crisis, so stay tuned for this episode. <laughs>